Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. How does somebody navigate social media and all these things that are being thrown at us now in terms of how to optimize your nutrition, how to optimize everything? Because it feels like every week there's a new study that's open to interpretation or maybe not done particularly well or being grabbed mm. by someone who's trying to sell something. It feels overwhelming even for someone like me who's been relatively immersed in the industry, albeit at an amateur level for a while. It does feel a little bit overwhelming. So how can somebody navigate all of this, this influx of information being told this is the way, this is the optimal way to do this, this is the optimal way to do that. Uh, I I think that the biggest gift someone can give themselves is actually to try and tune as much of it out as possible. Um, there's a really broad heuristic that we can apply here. If people on social media are, you know, hyper-focused on one specific factor um if they're hyper focused on specific foods and they're using words like toxic and this kind of thing and these are all red flags um if they are you know talking about really kind of cool sounding science and even using phrases like the studies show whatever you know with big claims attached to them but actually, if you really listen, it kind of all sounds a bit opaque and not, you know, that that's a red flag. Um, you know, so I can think of a number of examples. I can think of this one, the, the glucose goddess, right? Her whole thing is just showing people perfectly normal physiological glucose responses and pathologizing them to make people think there's a problem. Um, so that's an example of hyper focus on one specific thing absent other context. That's a red flag. Um, Andrew Huberman's a really good example of someone who sounds science-y, um, but is just pulling everyone's leg with, if you actually looked at the science that is supposed to be supporting these claims, it's it's a random rodent study, it's a speculative mechanistic study, it's not robust, but it sounds sexy when he's saying you get a 2,000% increase in dopamine from something and everyone goes, whoa, I want more dopamine. So I guess if it sounds sensationalist, if it's myopically focused on one specific factor, um, if it's someone with their shirt off in a supermarket shouting at foods, <laughs> it's a red flag. But And it's amazing to me that people don't see this. It's amazing to me that even without any sort of grounding in science or 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 scientific, you know, methodology or or otherwise, that people wouldn't look at something like that and be like, "Ah, oh, this is a red flag," rather than, "Wow, I'm going to listen to what this person is saying about vegetable oils." Uh, so it it blows think, my mind. What's that more down to? Sorry to jump in, but is that more down to the the average person's knowledge level being so low that the, the, these things are just readily accepted? Or is it the fact that we're seeing the emergence of these kind of social media scientists who have amazing credentials in, in their field or mm. work at an incredibly reputable facility? Um, and they bring with them a load of kind of trust and authority to subjects, and you've been very vocal in your criticism of of, of uh, Andrew Huberman mm -hmm. and 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 the, the the glucose goddess, and then especially with with Dr. Huberman coming at it with an enormous amount of respect and authority. Oh, he's a tenured I, professor at Stanford. <laughs> so it, it, this is, a, I guess, this is my 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 question is why have you been so vocal? Is it because there is that added element of trust or authority where somebody comes from a respected position? Mm -hmm. Even though they're now maybe potentially, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but straying out of their lane in terms of the advice they're giving, they're they're straying out of their lane, but they're and they're also deliberately. I I cannot believe for a second that someone with his, if we're sticking with Huberman as an example, someone with his kind of background, I cannot believe for a second that he doesn't realize that he's misrepresenting 
or quality or speculative levels of research into prescriptive behaviors you should do. And that's, I, I can't believe that's anything but deliberate. So why, why is he doing it? Because it's clout. Because because he's now, he's now, he's, he's as I called him once, he's Joe Rogan with P-values. You know, he's, he's, he's a slightly more credible bro because of, and, and so to your question, I think we've really got two, two different sides that I typically see. One is, yes, the authority bias. So someone like an Andrew Huberman or a Tim Spector, they're credentialed, they're academic, they have affiliations, they, they, they publish, you know, they're active publishing researchers, and yet they've hopped in at the opportunity to commercialize their position, basically, to commercialize their and commodify their contributions uh, and, and to essentially to commodify their their authority bias. And so I think that you have a type of person on social media that that very um, unwittingly uh, falls for that authority bias um, and assumes this person appears credible. Therefore, I expect that what they're saying is accurate and true. And so they're the ones that are very misled in a lot of this. But when it comes to the kind of other side, the, the what I would say is like deliberately or, or sorry, very clearly unhinged, you know, a, a Paul Saladino, for example, and some of these kind of carnivore or other kind of very extreme diet, quack, liver king and otherwise. I think that's a different type of, of ilk or different segment of the internet that typically, in my experience, the people who buy into that are actually part of an overall picture of very kind of anti-authority, conspiratorial thinking, so people that buy into, say, Liver King or otherwise, they don't just have that belief about diet in isolation. Pick at them and you'll typically you'll see a lot of, of very vehement anti-vaccine type of sentiments, you know, very prone to the government lied to us to get us to eat this way. So there's a lot of kind of conspiratorial elements that go into that aspect. And then I think I think on the other side, then the kind of Huberman Spectre or other or some of these kind of celebrity scientist types. I think you have this you have this weird just place that science has entered in the in the public domain, and I, I don't know what to make of it necessarily. Um, you, we saw it play out even during COVID. You know, this we have we have science typically has kind of just existed in the background. Uh, and and has served to improve society. I mean, that's ult its ultimate function. You know, we 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 have used science to improve everything from our communications technology to you know our our ability to you know keep someone alive after a heart attack and all of this kind of stuff. And typically, science has done that, and we've just we've we've benefited from this from this kind of invisible hand. And now, because of social media and because of other factors, science has taken on this kind of social aspect and role, um, which I which I kind of pejoratively refer to as like the science, capital T S. And it means that kind of your average Joe now in the public who 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 just would have got on with his life and never really thought twice about science, despite the fact that his life would have benefited or her life would have benefited from advancement in science in ways that they would have likely been unknown of. Um, and now they're interested in this, I, this, this thing they call science. So everyone's talking about studies and, and everyone, you know, we saw this happen during COVID where, you know, the, the kind of meme became how everyone was suddenly an armchair infectious disease epidemiologist overnight. But, but people are very serious with this and they expect to be taken seriously and they expect to have their opinion weighed with as much weight as 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 a, you know a 40 year like actual publishing you know a researcher in that field so so I think part of this it, I don't know really how to characterize it as this kind of socialization of science in in the social media age um and it really takes science out of its role as a kind of as a, as a, as a, as a, as a as a, an entity that serves society and it actually puts science as almost subservient to social agendas 
um, and commercial agendas. Um, and, and that's a, that's a, that's a strange place for it to be. Um, and I, I don't know what to make of it. And I've said this on social media multiple times, you know, that people should really just like stop being so interested in this stuff, you know, <laughs> like get new hobbies. <laughs> It's one of the reasons you're so vocal and, and sticking with um, Andrew Huberman or, or Tim Spector here, you'll be so critical of figures like that is because it's one thing for someone to go onto Instagram and, and see the Liver King or Carnivore MD, yeah. some of the things they're saying, and you can either like it and engage with it or, or take a step back. When it's a tenured professor giving these this advice, is there is a reason you're vocal, not just the risk that an individual is going to take that information on board, but the medical profession could be. You could have GPs or physicians tuning in, accepting some of the things that are said, whether or not they're accurate or not, is kind of beside the point, and then relaying that information to patients. Is that a concern? Massively. And I've I, it's, it's not even a hypothetical concern. I've seen it happen. I, I've seen the, the kind of uh, adjuration essentially that that Tim Spector gets amongst GPs and, and medical professionals. Um, he spoke at a, at a at a at a lifestyle medicine conference in the UK this year, and and was just you know again spewing very very unscientific positions on artificial sweeteners and 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 you know sugar and and stuff like this. So this is actively happening. It's disseminating into you know, uh, uh, other aspects of healthcare and it's, and it's flowing directly from his authority bias that is presented. Um, and I'm more vocally critical of those types of characters because in my opinion, they simply should know better. Um, I think that again, you know, how do we think about science? Well, you know, there's, yes, there's the body of knowledge that we produce that's, you know, published research and studies that have been conducted. But I also think that science, very importantly, is, is, a, is a way of thinking. It's, it's a certain epistemic framework that only really operates well when it's grounded in epistemic humility and intellectual honesty. And what I see in the likes of Spectre and Huberman is the actual inverse of that. It's it's epistemic arrogance and intellectual dishonesty because they're using, quote unquote, the science in furtherance of their own individual, you know, commercial and 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 and, and kind of, you know, I guess fame. And I think that's a really dangerous place for science to get to. And and I think they're they're people who are at the vanguard of along with some other variables that are really probably outside the scope of, of, of kind of us talking about this today, but, but the real erosion of, of the credibility and authority of science. So we we're in this weird place now where we simultaneously have people really interested in this thing called science and wanting to follow, be seen to follow, you know, people who speak about this thing called science, but actually don't know anything about this thing called science. And at the same time, we're living in in a in a period of very heightened anti-science sentiment uh, across multiple other elements of society, um, and so, and 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 that's not entirely without without some degree of of merit. Um, you know, we saw the way that the science quote unquote became weaponized during COVID which was an infectious disease that emerged within a couple of months. And suddenly people were acting as if we had answers. And it's like, hang on a minute. Um, you know, so and that, that's- how, how deliberate do you think some of the, 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 some of the names we've talked about, the likes of, of, of Huberman and Spectre, how deliberate is their misrepresentation of the science, uh, to, to mm. the phrase in your mind? Why do you think you're, they're doing it? And then there's a follow-up to that. Just you mentioned how dangerous it is, this misrep misrepresentation of science or- People, the average person feeling powered that they are now some kind of armchair scientist because they listen to a podcast. What, mm -hmm. What's the, the fearful end point of all this if it's unchecked in your view? So I think the why of it for me, really, like I've said before, I cannot believe that someone like a like a Huberman is not conscious that, oh, this is this is just a, 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 a rodent study, you know, that looked at something. Um anyone with any degree of scientific training or understanding of 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 the epistemology of of the scientific method would would take to a public platform consumed by hundreds of thousands of people 
and represent that study as a prescriptive behavior that someone could do. There's absolutely no way he doesn't know that that is gross misrepresentation of of research. Um, as to the why, uh, with Tim Spector, I think it's just so easy. The Zoe app, you know, the 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 Zoe, the commodification and commercialization of of this personalized nutrition stuff. Um, so his commercial ties are so clear, and his 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 commercial gain to adopting the stances that he does. Oh, the dietary guidelines are all wrong. Uh, everyone needs this, you know, personalized diet. It's 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 so clear what his agenda is. Um, with Huberman, I think again, it's 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 probably something similar, albeit in a different form. You know, through the podcast and and kind of revenue, and 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 it might be just because you know, at the end of the day, academia is kind of difficult at times, and no one's ever going to be wealthy from from dedicating a, a life to science in in an academic institution. And so I think really it comes back to in different ways the fact that this is their ability to commercialize themselves as an authority and and to and to gain commercially from that in terms of the repercussions potentially for this um I I I really I, I really don't know, but but my my tendency to see things through a, a glass half empty um, and and pour the rest out type of lens. I think we've got a, we've got a couple of things. We've got the commercialization, obviously, of of science that we've talked talked about. You know, in 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 reference to both of those characters, but there's also you know the erosion of credibility in science. We're seeing in science now again part of this socialization aspect is we're seeing social theories and ideas being kind of forced onto science. And we see that, you know, across there was after after the George Floyd killing, for example, there was this kind of obviously this this massive focus on, you know, are our are black American men disproportionately killed more than more than any other ethnic group by police. And actually the research is really poor. It's a really poor area of research. But but the answer to that, if you're really taking a scientific approach and you're trying to adjust for population numbers and 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 all of these other potential factors, is really not that clear. And it's not all entirely suggestive that there is any kind of greater level vis-a-vis -vis other ethnic groups, for example. That finding was considered verboten. There was only one answer. The the truth was that and so the the truth is in, you know quotation marks capital T and and so and so we entered this weird place in the last few years again even even with covid there are numerous examples where there was this assumed consensus because from a social perspective it was the right answer quote unquote and and that's science is science is compromised once it goes down that road um and so my my worry is that Whatever flaws science has, and it has them, and they're largely institutional flaws. They're not flaws with the method, the scientific method. They're flaws with how the institutions operate and publishing and all of this, you know, kind of murky world of 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 kind of uh, you know journals charging exorbitant amounts to publish papers and pay predatory journals, pay for play journals. I, I just I can envisage a point where science essentially and, and with this citizen scientist rise as you described, I just think we may get to a point where it's meaningless, essentially, and where similar to the way that the media went, we end up where science is supposed to help us separate fact from fiction, we end up with science itself blurring fact and fiction. Um and and once once we get to that point, then the entire project is gone, um, and and that 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 will be uh, that will be a scary time. <laughs> Last question: We've spoken about the Huberman Lab podcast, and I think one thing he's done very well is when he does have criticism, he will engage with with that critic. He'll even invite them on to the podcast, 
And I think you get the the the, the feeling that if there's an admission that there's been a mistake, it's kind of innocent and, and move on. And that adds to the, the aura of credibility and authority. Mm. This is going to be the problem with social media and with, with science podcasts or, or social media scientists, where if they do engage or they invite you onto the podcast, you're going to say yes because of the huge audience. You might leave some of your misgivings to one side because you know that you're going to be speaking to a lot of people and you might have a book or you might have an app or you might have whatever. How positive or optimistic are you that we can begin to turn the tide and get more credible information out there? Or do you feel like that, you know, that the ship has sailed and, and it's just... Yeah. Oh, well, I've only actually ever seen Huberman do that once and it was with Lane Norton and, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't see much of any sort of like challenge because of the, the subject matter was very much more on kind of like, you know, like some of the kind of like weight loss, like body composition type, you know, I, I don't think I, I don't think I really saw that much of 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 a challenge to but a lot of his wider to, stuff. You invited Dr. Norton onto the podcast, though, right, which even if. Yeah, yeah, true. There hasn't been an acknowledgement of uh, of of the criticism from a onlooker point of view. All is well in that world. Yes, yes, yes. So, so, so it does seem to kind of yeah uh, have this veneer, I guess, of 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 the kind of humility side. Um, but like, I, I, I still, I, I think this exists within a culture where the the horse is already bolted from the stable. I think. We're always going to be vastly outnumbered by, and even recently, this guy, Stephen Bartlett, who I'd never heard of until he started platforming, just incredible um, nutrition health people, one after the other after the other, um, and, and platforming, you know, and, 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 and yet on an enormous platform. Mm-hmm. So, 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 as long as as a Stephen Bartlett or a Joe Rogan or an Andrew, like we're we're just putting out little fires in a game that is unwinnable, um, and it's it's a case of whack a mole, uh, really is. And so, so I don't see any victory, so to speak, for for real science and and really kind of just credible sound information largely because it's not particularly sexy <laughs> um it's not going to sell a book it's not going to launch an enormous platform so i think that the best that we can do is try and carve out little corners of the internet where people who genuinely do want knowledge not for the sake of its sensationalism but for the sake of its veracity and accuracy and honesty uh end up being able to 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 find a home to and it, and i have you know I've a lot of conversations where I've, I've flirted with the merits of kind of being engaged in a in a public facing context and there's always you know that that reinforcement from 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 the audience that well well i'm not here for bullshit i'm not i'm not here i'm i'm here for understanding genuine science and what this says or does not say even if the ultimate take-home message is as boring as exercise and eat fruit and vegetables um and so that's reinforcing to me but i think the reality of it is and i say this to other science communicators let's be really much more honest and open about the fact that this is an unwinnable fight we are fighting a rearguard action and we will and we we have lost and so the purpose of this rear guard action is to simply save as many other people who are open to being who are open to being saved as as we can. So you we get off this call now, you open your inbox, there's an email from Andrew at the Hubermanlab.com inviting you on. Are you going? I, I would go, of course, but 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 I I I would we would be having a, a hard conversation. That that I hope would be had in in the spirit of science and in, in that spirit of of intellectual honesty and 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 humility that you know uh, again would 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 allow some of these concerns to be to be put to him in a sense. What's, um, your, what's your first question to him? <laughs> that's my first question. I, I think I'd be something framing it something along the lines of what I've just said to you is that that idea that I have that this is you you have to know that this is deliberate. That there's no one that has any sort of understanding of the basic hierarchy of evidence 
that takes a rodent study and turns it into prescriptive advice. Um, and, 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 you know, the, 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 otherwise he's just, I don't know, it's so long ago since he did basic scientific, you know, epistemology and methods that, that he's just forgotten it all. I don't know, but I think it would be something along those lines. Um, you know, that, that like help me to understand why it is that you're making these claims. Personalized nutrition is is a huge in area of interest mm. research at the moment. What's your take on firstly how seismic a, a truly personalized approach to nutrition would be, not only for obesity and weight management, but also the long-term health and well-being of, of an individual? And just how realistic are some of the breakthroughs that are being touted close to being adopted by the general population? Yeah, so so I don't think there's anything seismic about personalized nutrition at all. I think it's a real example of where we have this tendency in our contemporary culture to be seduced by technology. And we assume that anything that's based in technology or represents an advancement related to technology is inherently better than than anything that's come before it um and i think personalized nutrition is also an example of what happens when science becomes commercialized to and 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 in that sense is is compromised by the commercialization of of what the research says when you actually look at the big trials that support much of the claims around personalized nutrition and if you were to come to them having seen the commercial side of it, you know, and the, the big claims made, and this is everyone will get their own individualized diet and that and will solve every, And you actually look then at the research and realize how underwhelming it actually is. Um, in most of the research, the personalized nutrition algorithm produces advice that's really no better than a dietitian sitting down with someone and going over their own diet. Um, the argument back to that would be that, well, you know, a dietitian only gets to someone when they're already, uh, you know, experiencing a decline in their in their health and needs to make changes, whereas, you know, personalized nutrition can be predictive. Um, I, I don't necessarily buy that um, because it's going to only ever reflect the population you take your data from to build your algorithm with. So if you're taking data from individuals with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, then your algorithm is going to produce recommendations specific to that population. If you take, you know, uh, a broadly healthy population and, and, and come up with it, you know, the idea that the advice, so to speak, produced from that would be identical to the, uh, you know, the, the, the population with some degree of metabolic impairment, um, you know, it would be different likely. So you look at the actual magnitude of changes as well. One of the big aspects that I find funny in all of this is this assumption that it's going to be so personalized that everyone's diet will be slightly different. And this is way better than these broad dietary guidelines we recommend at the population. And yet one of the biggest studies to actually look at changes in, in people's diet, which is called the Food for Me trial, uh, was conducted a multi-site study across a couple of European countries. And when you look at the changes that were made as a result of this kind of personalized nutrition, which which was just again, you know, from from sitting down with nutritionists and actually, so so the actual algorithm based kind of personalized nutrition or the genotype and phenotype data didn't actually improve the recommendations above just good nutrition advice. But when you look at the changes. It was things like they reduced their red meat consumption, they reduced their sodium consumption, they consumed more fiber and more fruits and vegetables. Like, okay, so there are just our population guidelines. <laughs> so, so we're really being sold down a, a river, I think, on this in many ways. Um, and ultimately, you have to ask the question, like, who is this really serving? It's serving the worried well. It's serving people with money who have the ability to buy health, who are already the people who least need most of the the interventions that we do need. Obesity, uh, any of the chronic lifestyle diseases that we experience in the population at a high prevalence, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, these stratify along socioeconomic lines. Um, the idea that that this is an intervention that reaches uh, down to the people who need it most um, is fanciful thinking, if at best. 
and and there's just nothing really in terms of the the if you look for example at at the 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 two there was one study in Israel and one here you know the predict study and again they're they're largely based off glucose they're looking at people's glucose responses and they're largely and you'll see one or two examples in in these papers of oh well look this was one person's response to a banana and this was another's and they're they're completely different and it's like yeah but but that's again scale that up to the whole population and i would i would almost bet based on regression to the mean that that would wash out and we just still see an effect and in a in a population like the uk uh, as in as in as in we wouldn't see ne- like necessarily negative effects of a banana and in a population in the uk where the average you know fruit and vegetable intake is half of the target of the five a day the idea that we're now getting this message out there that maybe some people shouldn't be eating you know fruit because they might i just think it really puts the cart before the horse from a public health perspective and if you look at those studies they've largely like i said been based on measures of glucose response as a result all the algorithms really spit out is just advice for people to restrict carbohydrate intake we don't really have any good validation data that diet quality itself is improved um and so i'm very skeptical of personalized nutrition um the accelerated commercialization of it is way out over its skis relative to the evidence and the veracity of that evidence um and and i and i think that's probably why there's such a rush to commercialize it uh, because the evidence really is not that uh, overwhelming at all um and certainly from a public health perspective my big worry with a lot of this stuff this kind of health tech approach is that it's a very kind of it's a very neoliberal approach to it'll boil everything back to you know the health of the individual and the responsibility of the individual and actually all we need to do is take everyone in the population and you know get this algorithm to tell them what to do and 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 we'll leave it at that and as a result then personalized nutrition basically ignores all of the structural and commercial determinants of health um as as they currently are the biggest determinants of an individual's dietary intake their diet quality and their related you know kind of health risk over the longer term concept of chrononutrition is a relatively new part of the nutrition conversation and research and i'd really hope you could give us a great overview of what actually is it um why there's more attention being placed on it now and i guess the third part of the question what it means for an individual yeah so it is interesting in the nutrition context it's a much more recent point of focus but if you asked a chronobiologist they would tell you that this kind of really goes back to certainly the 1920s where experiments in rodents showed that if you only made food available at certain times of day the rodents would basically adapt their their behaviors in order to be ready and waiting for when that food became available now we're, we're obviously not rodents but it it showed that perhaps there were aspects of eating behavior that followed rhythms uh, related to, you know, the timing of, of behaviors and otherwise. So a circadian rhythm, I imagine every listener actually, uh, you know, will have an experience of this through jet lag, for example. Anyone who's ever flown anything over about three or four hours west or east will have had that experience of being a little discombobulated. Uh, and certainly for further trips, you know, anyone who's, say, flown from London to to Los Angeles or Chicago or even Sydney, which would be the worst because uh, you're going east, knows knows what jet lag feels like. And you're waking up at odd times. You're not hungry when it's kind of breakfast or lunchtime there. You're eating when you are hungry, but then your stomach feels a bit messed up because actually it's 2 a.m. back where you flew from and all of this. So we have rhythms in our biology that align to roughly about uh, a little over in humans, the 24 hour day. There are about 24 and a half hours. If you were to remove any inputs like light or anything else, you put someone in a completely pitch black room, leave them alone for a few days, these rhythms will run around 24 and a half hours. And so we then use aspects of the environment, like particularly the light dark cycle, to synchronize those rhythms to the precise 24 hour day. 
So that's why they're called circadian. It's basically a derivative of the Latin meaning around the day. And so if we're in a particular part of the world, we have a certain light-dark cycle. We align to the timing of that light-dark cycle in whatever part of the world we are. And the reason this is important is because we are day-active mammals. And so our active period is the light period. We then have the behaviors associated with waking during that period. We're physically active. We exercise. We look for food in an evolutionary context. Now we have food in the fridge. And we, we're doing our eating and feeding during that day. So, so chronobiology touches nearly every aspect of our life. Um, and we sleep, obviously, then during the, the night period. Uh, and there's multiple aspects to how this may influence human health and physiology in the modern world. Artificial light exposure in the evenings is one example. But from a nutrition perspective, the broad theory is that if for optimal kind of synchronization of the circadian system uh, and therefore optimal health, we should be aligning the timing of our meals uh, and our nutrient intake as much as possible with the timing of the rhythms in our body that would help us digest, absorb, and process uh, that food and nutrients and energy. And in the modern context, uh, and certainly in very much Western industrialized countries, you can see a pattern of energy intake and meal timing across the day where people tend to delay when they eat, when they wake up. That's not deliberate. Uh, so I'll separate that from deliberately delaying eating, such as in a certain type of, say, intermittent fasting or otherwise. And then the bulk of daily energy in these kind of diet patterns, these meal patterns that we have in industrialized, Western industrialized countries typically comes then in the evening. And we have a lot of observational research that suggests that if you're eating a bulk, you know, 40, 50% of energy intake in the evening, that that is associated with higher type 2 diabetes risk, obesity risk, and otherwise. But the question is then why? Um, and chrononutrition started really looking more at, you know, lab studies, intervention trials to try to tease out what could be going on underneath uh, that might explain some of these. And we have some parts of the picture are more well-established than others and clearer than others. One of which is our glucose tolerance shows a very strong time of day rhythm. So our ability to uh, have better glucose tolerance is higher earlier in the day. So we have better glucose tolerance early in the day, and that diminishes in the evening. Um, and then there's uh, other aspects, like, for example, uh, the the level of, of, of postprandial lipemia is a fancy term for the level of fat that will be floating in the blood after a meal. And that can be elevated if people are eating, uh, you know, meals in the later biological evening compared to the morning. As it relates to body weight, we, we know now from intervention trials that this is probably what we're seeing in epidemiology is simply an effect of total calorie intake, as in when we compare higher versus uh, higher morning energy intake versus kind of higher evening energy intake, we don't typically see a difference in, in weight loss uh, if we have control over how much energy people are eating, total energy people are eating. But a lot of these trials don't really have people eating late in the, in the real sense of the term. Um, and so what, what is likely happening at, at a population level is that as people go through the day, uh, if they've undereaten earlier in the day, there's effects on appetite. And there's also, as the day goes on, people seem to have less satiety, less fullness and, and appetite suppression in response to a meal, even if the actual energy content of that meal is getting better or bigger, sorry. So, so, so what, what we think is possibly happening now is that people simply have a tendency to, if overconsume energy later in the evening. And then this is likely then what explains the kind of weight gain and metabolic disease risk. But there certainly are, uh, in, even independent of weight gain, potential impacts on metabolic health that relate to, say, glucose tolerance, insulin sensitivity, and, and, and cholesterol and, and fat metabolism. It feels like all of the attention when we're looking at obesity and why somebody gains weight is on the type of food they're eating, specifically processed food or ultra-processed food, and the quality of the nutrients, and also the volume, how much 
we're eating. It feels as though this is quite a significant part of the overall picture, though, because it doesn't feel that the general conversation is giving really any weight to the time at which people are eating. Is it as significant as that, or is it something that an individual should weigh up in their consideration if they are looking at some type of weight management program? I think it could, depending on the individual. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, weight gain over time or weight loss over time is going to be a function of the amount of energy an individual's consuming relative to their, you know, height and weight and sex and and body composition. You know, people with more muscle mass relative to fat mass will have a higher requirement for energy and all these kind of factors that that bear into it. But at this most fundamental level, as a kind of first principle, the net gain or loss of body weight in humans is is going to be a function of of how much energy they're eating. So the question over how relevant timing is, is really how relevant is timing related to energy intake? So we do know that there appear to be um, quite strong effects on appetite with earlier energy intake. When people eat more of their total energy early in the day, they appear to have better appetite regulation over the course of the rest of the day. And the suggestion is then that that is something that will help people obviously then consume less energy. If they wear whatever diet, independent of what type of diet they're deciding to follow. Um, And so that's, I I think when you look at the overall research, there are definitely responders, so to speak, in, 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 in that regard. There appears to be uh, you know, people who will really benefit from from that type of approach. And and there are probably people for whom it doesn't necessarily make much of a difference. Um, and so, you know, I think the timing component can be important as it relates to total energy intake. So so for people, for example, this this pattern that we tend to see of evening energy intake associated with kind of weight gain and adverse, you know, health risk over time, I, I really think that's probably because of the tendency to overconsume in the evening with that type of energy pattern. Uh, so people have undereaten during the day. They haven't got enough appetite suppression or or hunger regulation. They're prone to overeating in the evening. We do know there's a circadian rhythm in subjective hunger levels, and it peaks around, say, 7 to 8 p.m. kind of clock time. Um, and we also know that people seem to get less satiety from bigger meals as the day goes on. So there's all of this stuff combines to mean that people over, if you look at the tendencies in binge eating disorder, for example, it's almost exclusively occurring in the evening. So I think that for people that have, uh, you know, are intending to try to lose weight, um, have maybe tried diets before and have struggled with those diets and have struggled with appetite and hunger. I do think that the strategy of front-loading energy intake can potentially be be of, of real benefit in, in helping their overall appetite and hunger regulation. Uh, and that in turn could facilitate weight loss because they've just got better appetite regulation and they're and they're they're finding eating less easier than they would be if they were um, you know, trying to structure their energy intake another way. But as it relates to other components, such as, you know, for example, food processing and so much in the media recently about ultra processed foods. I mean, there is a really, really nice, uh, very tightly controlled study by Kevin Hall, who's, who's produced some of the best nutrition research really in terms of its methodological rigor in the last decade. And they compared a kind of ultra processed versus minimally po- processed food diet in a lab. So, so everything was kind of controlled and People consuming the ultra-processed food diet did end up consuming, you know, and and it was quite stark. It was around 500 calories per day more. And one of the theories here is this idea of kind of, you know, passive overconsumption insofar as you're consuming foods that have a certain amount of palatability, i.e. they just taste good, but they're also not particularly uh um energy they're, they're 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 they have a high density of energy relative to the volume of the actual food so it's easy to overconsume food and there's research that people tend to consume the same weight or volume of food from day to day so if you're now consuming foods that are very high in energy 
but you're still going to aim to have the same volume of food in your in your diet habitually because because of you know the neurobiology of eating that's kind of driving you to that point and your subjective sense of fullness in your stomach and otherwise in a in a post meal period the idea that these foods could then be a real driver of excess energy i think has some validity um and and that i think there's a lot of unknowns in terms of is it the processing itself or does it just relate to the energy density component or is it the palatability um and and those kind of questions i think are slightly more open at this point but the idea because you'll see this a lot in the fitness industry it's it kind of almost is very reductionist you know food quality doesn't matter food time nothing matters except your energy deficit for weight loss and it's like that's not untrue but but that's about as reductive as it gets it's 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 missing so many parts of the picture so it's true just only at the level of principle um and ultimately you know it's it's we know like that first principle as i said this fundamental yes energy balance dictates gain or loss of body mass in humans but at the same time there are factors that then influence that energy balance and to state the principle in and of itself without any regard to those factors is to really miss the forest for the trees what do we know about the optimal approach then cuz i'm thinking some of the the issues you've mentioned in terms of when we eat now and how much we eat is a product of the post-industrial revolution, right? Where workers are suddenly moving into cities, you're having set meal times. What do we know about a more optimal pre-industrial revolution? I'll try that again. What do we know about a pre-industrial revolution eating strategy for the average population to observe what were they eating and when were they eating? And uh, does that kind of relate to what we should, more of us should be doing now? It's, yeah, it's difficult to piece together because, you know, we didn't have nutrition science per se in the in the, in the 1700s and so what we typically end up doing if we're trying to look way back um to a kind of more evolutionary context typically what's the the approach now would be to look at modern unacculturated populations so populations that are still living according to a very subsistence hunter gatherer lifestyle there are various populations left in the world doing so um some in the polynesian islands in the pacific some in south america in the amazon and some in africa and you typically tend to see i mean th- these are generally i mean we use the term hunter gatherers most of these societies are gatherers and hunters second because gathering is innately more low risk um and you know there's always the chance that i think i remember one reading one um paper about a a, a particular unacculturated uh, tribe in africa and their kill success rate if they went hunting was about 26% so it's not really that much of a guarantee that you're coming home with a nice big you know <laughs> antelope or something to have for dinner um and and generally you do see a a kind of set meal uh you know type of 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 i guess eating or dietary pattern in a lot of these populations um it might differ um you know eating eating a first meal whatever we label we want to call that appears to be fairly common across the board um and in terms of kind of more you know pre-industrial you know it's again it seems it's difficult to get a picture of this i mean i've seen people refer to chaucer uh because there's reference to this idea of like second breakfasts and stuff and you know was 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 the first meal of the day a kind of very small light snack essentially and then there was a more substantive meal some hours later you know if if we're reaching into Chaucer to try and figure out how we used to eat um you know I, I think ultimately if, if if we're trying to maybe apply modern knowledge to this lens again going back to that idea that broadly speaking we're we're day active mammals it seems to me that within a broad range of of our active waking period it's it's likely to have been of little relevance you know in human evolution particularly in an evolutionary context we would have been in more unpredictable food availability environments again that's one hypothesis as to why we're such we're such seekers of food and we we now live in an environment with with food ubiquity and it's all around us and yet we have this kind of um 
you know, hardwiring for for this idea for food for for security for food security, um, and and indeed, if you look at human behavior when when people are exposed to starvation, uh, you know, we we really do reverse. You know, all all veneers of civilization are lost. So so I mean that that's slightly tangential, but I think ultimately, I don't know that we would ever exhibit a uniform optimal timing pattern of, of food intake. And when you look at, there was a study which looked at timing of, of meals across 10 different European countries published a couple of years ago. And it was really interesting because of how different it was. So, you know, in the Southern Mediterranean countries, you will typically see that their largest meal comes in the middle of the day. Um, in the Nordic countries, particularly the Scandinavian countries, you can often see that their dinner meal is relative to what we might do here much earlier, you know, average of like 5 p.m. Uh, in, in some in, in the Scandinavian countries. And, you know, in the UK then and the US, for example, you tend to see kind of eating much later uh, and you tend to see more energy consumed in the last meal of the day. So actually, human eating patterns exhibit a huge array of diversity that reflects cultural and regional and potentially even religious factors. If we think about Ramadan and and the and the and the and the practices that are involved in that, and there's a lot of research around Ramadan and and how it influences, you know, health markers or otherwise when people are not eating or or drinking during the during the during the you know sunrise to sunset period. So I don't think there's any real optimal timing of eating for humans, but I do think that there is certainly enough evidence to suggest that there's a non-optimal um, kind of pattern. And that pattern, based on everything we know about circadian rhythms and diet, would suggest that really eating during the biological night, really eating late into the night, close to midnight and beyond, uh, really is is not ideal for for overall health. What are the implications when we're looking at people who either are shift working, night workers, and the implications there around meal timing, and also people who maybe have a traditional working week but follow an intermittent fasting or restricted eating um, timeline? Mm. What are your thoughts on that? If we can tackle the the, the shift workers first, because obviously there's there's a ton of research of the health outcomes of of working non traditional hours. What yeah. What do we know about the the eating behaviors around those those working patterns? So, so shift work is is night shift work in particular poses a really um, significant long term health risk, um, and that seems to become more pronounced the longer someone does night shifts. Um, and the reason is because we don't tend to just work consecutive night shifts. Most shift patterns follow a rotating pattern. Which essentially means, I think for listeners, a good way to conceive of this is imagine constantly doing seven hour flights, you know, east around the world and never actually arriving in a destination. So you're you're in a constant state of, of jet lag, essentially. We call it, there's this term social jet lag that's arising now, which which could apply. But with shift work, you're basically never actually aligning and synchronizing with the with the particular uh pattern of 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 waking and sleeping and eating that you're following and there's as a result there are so many different factors that that likely add up to influence the health health risk associated with night shift work and eating is possibly uh only one of them um for example you know sleep disruption and sleep curtailment is is itself independently associated with with adverse health outcomes as it relates to the nutrition and diet side more so, it's interesting because, again, you you typically see um, that diet quality itself is lower during periods of night shift works. Um, I With our, our group, we published a paper um, a couple of years ago where we looked at the pattern of energy intake on night, NHS nurses working night shifts. And basically... Although they didn't, their total energy intake during the days they were working night shifts didn't actually change. What they did was we saw this redistribution of energy. So they were consuming more. They were consuming the same total amount of energy for three days that they were working, but they were now starting to consume more of the proportion of that energy during their night shift. So we've got 
And and within that, then we know from research on shift workers that the quality of that tends to be a focus on, again, some of these more, you know, palatable comfort foods, essentially, you know. And and when you look at some of the qualitative research that is that has looked at, you know, shift workers, a, re- a real picture emerges that, you know, one working nights isn't isn't enjoyable. No, no one enjoys it. Um, two, if they're working jobs like in healthcare, there's possibly a lot of stress involved. They're poss- possibly dealing with distressing situations. They're on their feet a lot. And so the idea that they would say, oh, I'll have a salad at 2 a.m., you know, that's just not human behavior. Um, and, 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 and I can understand this. I mean, I remember um, we, we did a study a, a couple of years ago, which, which in, went through the, the night. We were looking at a kind of a form of simulated jet lag. And I remember, you know, 2 a.m. just just eating this half of this entire Jamaican ginger cake in, in the nurse's quarters because at that point I was just so knackered and, and, and everything else. So there's a real social component why there is eating during the night shift. There's a social component to, and a psychosocial component to why a lot of those foods are more comfort foods, which inherently are not necessarily quote unquote healthy. Um, but it's, but like I said, it's very difficult to tell someone, oh, well, just have some Greek yogurt instead. The, the optimal thing to do for night shift is also the hardest thing to do. The optimal thing to do would be to try to maintain your meals according to your actual daytime normal intake in as much as possible. You know, have a big meal, for example, at say 8 p.m. before, you know, assuming a typical night shift, you know, might be like 9 to 7 a.m., for example. So, so do have a big meal beforehand that could hopefully sustain and then um, try to avoid, you know, too much energy intake during what would be because internally it's nighttime to the body, even though you are awake and you are conscious that you're awake. But, but I appreciate that that. And, and the reason I, I talked about the other factors first is because I appreciate how difficult that advice is. Um, so typically what I would say whenever I, I'm kind of asked the question about night shift work is unfortunately, we don't really have any good research on what they should do. We've all the research saying what not to do. And we really, for such a ubiquitous part of our workforce, we're really underserving that community by not having quality research that might suggest here are some strategies you can do. So in the absence of that, I'm typically left filling in blanks by saying, you know, if you're you're going to snack, just try not to over snack um, and try to keep it maybe to a couple of like discrete points during the shift rather than just constantly like grabbing a biscuit here, grabbing a biscuit there and that kind of thing. So, So to try to maybe put some structure on it, um, uh, but yeah, again, I appreciate that I, I'm not the one that has to, you know, be awake at 3 a.m. in an A&E ward. What about then when the shift ends? Because they're, someone's probably just wants to hit the sack at that point, right? But you're probably quite hungry. If you've tried to maintain healthy snacking throughout that, what are the implications of perhaps then having a heavy meal, then immediately going to sleep? Are you encountering some of the same problems that we've talked about previously with eating a big meal before bedtime when you've worked a traditional working day? Potentially not because your internal rhythms are still largely aligned to to the daytime. So, so and, and actual meal composition could help here as well. So typically, I actually do recommend generally if I am, you know, uh, spoken to, you know, shift workers, I mean, ask this question a lot on, on kind of various podcasts that my response would typically be, do you have a breakfast when they get home from the ship shift, but make it slightly more kind of, you know, protein, uh, kind of, you know, rich protein meal, um, slightly more protein uh, that, you know, and kind of lowering carbohydrate. Um, because they'll get, you know, a little, a bit of a satiating effect from that. Um, but it also may actually kind of help to just not have that much of an impaired kind of glucose, blood glucose response to a meal. So, you know, for example, coming home and having like a couple of poached eggs or something like that, and, you know, like a slice of brown toast and something light protein rich, and then going to sleep. And then when they get up. Uh, let's say they sleep, and and again, the sleep quality is typically not great. But let's say they get up then early afternoon, 
you know, again, have another light meal in the, in the middle of the day, but, but also go out and get some, you know, go for like a walk and get some natural light exposure. Again, all of this is because they're trying to, the ideal scenario is you try and keep yourself on your kind of day, day, social day, active time frame, such that when you then finish your run of night shifts, two, three night shifts in a row, for example, you're hopefully then able to adapt slightly better back to a, a day active routine. Um, and that's, you know, again, particularly important for shift workers that have kids or something like that. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, just those, those, those kind of typical variables then, or, you know, people that want to maybe meet friends on a weekend and they don't want to be too goose. So, so where, where as much as possible, yeah, I do think it's a good idea to have a kind of protein rich breakfast when they get back sleep have another you know have a, have have a meal when they when they get up when they wake up and then have a, you know have another meal again and and in as much as possible they're trying to keep their meal timing aligned to kind of the daytime so to speak um and yeah even then if that means kind of a snack during the night even you know maybe 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 a protein bar like a grenade bar something like that um but again uh you know because it's at least something that resembles a chocolate bar, but um, but maybe but may, may not quite be. So it's 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 a, it's a really difficult one to come to, you know, broad based advice for uh, a part of the workforce that unfortunately is very underrepresented in research for what to do rather than just don't do. While shift workers don't necessarily have that choice about when they when they can eat in an optimal timing strategies a lot of people will follow some sort of intermittent fasting or you know time restricted eating pattern what does our understanding of chrononutrition how does that relate to, to people who might be following a 16a or another mm. intermittent fasting schedule where they are going through large portions of the of the waking day specifically morning and, and lunchtime without taking any calories yeah so there's there's an interesting distinction because there are often terms intermittent fasting and time restricted eating or time restricted feeding are often used interchangeably but there there is a certainly a distinction in in what we would refer to them as in the research so intermittent fasting would simply refer to any sort of extended period with with no energy intake whatsoever but with no discernible pattern to that Whereas time-restricted eating has the characteristic of being the same pattern of feeding and fasting as a window repeated from day to day. Um, so, for example, some of the fasting, intermittent fasting regimes might have something like alternate day fasting or something like a 5-2 where people eat normally five days a week and then either don't eat at all or maybe have only around 500 calories on two days of the week. And they, they might select different days each week you know to do that there may there may not necessarily be much of a pattern to it and then time restricted eating would involve like you say a 16 age is a really popular example of this where people will consume all of their energy for that day within an eight hour window and they won't eat for the other 16. and the most common approach to this has actually been to do this from the middle of the day onwards so people might say have their first meal at midday and they may have dinner around 8 p.m or 7 p.m so overall, their total eating window is about eight hours. We've also then had the emergence of, in research, this early time-restricted eating, which is the exact same principle, only the period of eating is from, say, 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. or something like that. From a circadian perspective, the early part of the day is slightly more aligned with the kind of optimal like I said, kind of our ability to have optimal glucose tolerance um, and and otherwise. And there may be a slight advantage to that for some of those outcomes in research when we compare, say, an early window to a kind of middle of the day window. In otherwise healthy people, I'm not convinced that those differences actually matter from a from a real world or, or kind of clinical perspective, so to speak. Um, and the ultimate, I guess, you know, a couple of years ago, there was this potential interest that there was maybe a bit of a magic bullet, that by extending your fasting window, you were inevitably going to rely more on, you know, for example, you storing, using up 
stored body fat for energy and maybe losing more weight. Again, we, we do know that there's really no difference at all once you match total energy intake. Whether someone eats within four hours or six hours or eight hours or 12 hours isn't going to make a difference to weight loss or gain. So I think for people that, you know, deliberately follow one of those patterns and maybe prefer the middle of the day type of window, I don't see any difficulty with that. But I do think that some of those, for a long-term perspective, some of those other factors still apply and that it would be better to have their kind of biggest meal of the day as as one of their first meals, for example, um, you know, rather than following an eight hour window and maybe eating between say midday eight or, or particularly because I know I've spoken to people who do, you know, 2 PM till 10 PM and have their biggest meal at 10 PM. Um, and, and they're typically actually monitoring things like their total energy intake. So they're saying, well, I'm, I'm fine. It's like, yes, because you're conscious and monitoring your energy intake. But over time, you know, again, that, that would be something that based on everything we know, we would expect to potentially add up over time to, you know, compared to someone that, that followed their or consumed their, their biggest meal earlier in the day, we would expect that potentially then to result in, say, for example, better, better glycemic control, better glucose tolerance. Um, so I still think some of that, that, um, yeah, some of those characteristics of your distribution of energy still might apply in the context of a, an eight hour window where people choose it to be in the middle of the day. 